Hello and welcome to Stephanomics, the podcast that brings the global economy to you. We're doing something different this week because I'm sitting here in the Bloomberg offices in London in the presence of greatness, the Nobel Prize winning economist Christopher Pissaridis, who's the Regis Professor of Economics at London School of Economics and the joint winner of the Nobel Prize uh, for Economics in 2011 for his work on labour markets and a theory of unemployment. Now, on Stephanomics, we do have to pay some attention to the daily news, and I'm going to have a chat later with one of our reporters on the latest developments in Donald Trump's trade wars. But first, I get to ask Professor Pissarides what he thinks about the state of the world, the state of economics, and pretty much anything else I want. So, Professor Pissarides, Chris, welcome. Thank you very much. Thank you for those kind words. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was, we, we know that you justify them. Uh, look, there are lots of things I'd like to talk to you about but maybe start with the most recent research that I've seen from you, which has been about this hot topic of automation and the impact of technology on all of our lives. I know a lot of people focus on the fear of lost jobs from technology, but I was interested to see that you took a broader uh, approach, which in some ways made it, should make us feel better about the impact of technology, because you were asking how it's improved our welfare in ways beyond GDP. Can you, can you tell us a bit about that? Yes, I mean, I, I think we should broaden our concept of um, well-being and even growth that we're looking at. The quality of life, what we do to the environment, how much leisure time we get, the quality of services we get, how we spend our free time, and especially how we deal with poverty. And finding ways to improve all these things could really make a difference to our society as a whole. And I was struck that you mentioned uh, in the paper that actually it could make Europeans feel a bit better about themselves because actually you were suggesting that overall welfare had actually grown faster in Europe, at least until, until the last few years, because they were sort of taking more advantage of technology, at least when it comes to having more leisure time. Well, where, where they are, that's where you find it, the statistics when you look at it. The countries in the OECD, you know, the the club of uh, wealthy nations, basically, that um, work the least number of hours through the year are Germany and the Netherlands, the countries that have the highest standards of living. And that's because they take uh, longer annual breaks, which means that you have more time to enjoy life. You don't just work 24-7 and then at the end you say, oh, look how much money I made. Um, The other thing that makes you feel a little bit better about well, better about Europe is that I, I think we do have better policies about, um, uh, about the environment, about the protection of uh, privacy, human rights, uh, competition policy. So in general, the prospects on these, um, mm. in, on these dimensions are good in Europe. And that's why I'm not too worried that uh, our rates of growth and our productivity are not matching those of China, for example, <laughs> or even those of the United States. You know. I mean, it's interesting. I suspect a couple of the things that you've said will go down very well with a lot of listeners, because one of the things people often say to me is, why do you just focus on GDP? We should have broader measures. Uh, and to have your research kind of take that on board in a really explicit way, particularly in this paper I think people will like. Of course the other thing that plays certainly to European sense of 
um, sort of uh, superiority, shall we say, against some other models and maybe even the Americans is that we like to feel like we have more higher quality lives. Yes. Um, and you're kind of finding that in the data. But on a, I mean, looking ahead, thinking about the big trends coming down the track for Europe and for everybody else, mm-hmm. uh, automation, but also demographic change, all the things that we talk about all the time. Do you think Europe is actually better placed to respond to those because of their history of government intervention and the social contract? Because I think that's what Americans might find a little bit hard to swallow, that Europe's actually Mm. in a better place. I do think we are not doing enough as yet to um, embrace the new technology and especially to protect um, workers who are going to lose their jobs in the sense of uh, helping them through government. Uh, to get the uh, to, to move to the new sectors to get the new jobs, um, countries like Sweden, uh, Denmark, the other Nordics are doing more uh, than the rest. Germany is doing quite a lot. We, we need to broaden this out throughout Europe a lot more. But we are doing much more than uh, than the United States. And like very um, rightly you said, it's because we have a tradition with the government helping the market. If we leave the market alone, it's going to give outcomes that have many undesirables in it. It's going to give us more inequality that we like to take. It's going to give us more poverty, um, probably more unemployment, in, uh, contributing to that poverty in the sense of moving in and out of jobs at uh, much faster rates than if you have a good source of support network that helps workers uh, retrain, uh, look for jobs that they're well matched to. And... Um, and we are moving in that direction. You know, I hear many encouraging sounds coming out of um, politicians and institutions. Uh, there's still a lot to do, especially on longer term, things like reforming the educational system. Um, but uh, we're on the right track. I mean, I think and a lot of Americans might listen to you, uh, well, certainly critics of Europeans, would listen, of the European approach, would listen to this and say it's hopelessly complacent. Because if you look at... You can't entirely ignore GDP. And if you look at Europe's growth rate and if you look at the dynamism of their industries relative to the US, leadership of some of these key sectors lacking, um, they would say, well, it's all very well. You've got a nice social contract and it's going to take you right to the graveyard or at least to turn you into a sort of museum uh, as the global economy moves forward. How would you respond to that? I mean, growth does matter. Well, I I mean, growth matters. I'm not saying that uh, ignore GDP. Uh, well, I don't know. I mean, you know, I, I go to China frequently and I take walks in their amazing shopping malls. I see a lot more European names there than American, I can tell you. In fact, you can hardly find any American names there. But it's completely full of European. Go into any, go out in the, in, in the streets, you know, when you send your car to pick you up. It's always a European car, it's not American. And go into people's homes, washing machines and um, vacuum cleaners and all that they use. Nine out of ten is European. All right. Well, so we're sticking with the kind of uh, what would be considered considered to be the slightly smug uh, European <laughs> approach, but that's fine. Uh, we, you talk about needing to have political responses and interventions to make this process for automation and technology go better for people. And, of course, you, one other thing you would say looking at Europe at the moment is people don't like politicians very much. Mm-hmm. Uh, that the, 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 main, the system that had delivered these policies that often have helped to sort of shield people from the worst of the markets 
is also a system that people seem to be voting out of office with this big surge of, of populism. Are you, how are politicians going to make these right choices if they're all being thrown out and replaced with maybe more irresponsible characters? Well, that, 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 that's the development that worries me most, actually, at Europe. Um, I was looking recently at some uh, statistics of... Uh, not only Europeans, but generally the OECD and the G7, they're looking at their government, and more, more than half the people are dissatisfied with the way their government is running the country. Um, most think that we're going to be worse off in the next 20 years, uh, that their country is on the wrong track. All, all this needs, it needs to be reversed. It's easier said than done. Um, I do think... Um, something that's going to maybe will make me unpopular with some of your British listeners, but I do think that uh, uh, Central European institutions can do more that um, would apply to the whole of Europe where you see these developments taking place throughout. I don't think we've done enough about that. In fact, uh, some, at least some of the political extremism that we're seeing is due to the policies that were followed uh, within Europe during the financial crisis and the debt crisis after being a critic the way yeah. that uh, Greece and other countries were dealt with, for example. And, um, we, we, we do need to work hard on that. Because we, we shouldn't just take it lightly and say, oh, well, you know, politicians ignore them. No, but then, that, you know, that's, that. that was one of the, the famous comments that Chancellor uh, Angela Merkel made, the German Chancellor, about, you know, the answer to a lot of these problems, if you look at how that, what happened in the crisis, was sort of more Europe, you know, more cooperation. Yes, yes. And what people are saying in the ballot box is less Europe. So yes. how, how do we reconcile? Well, well whenever, whenever there's a ballot, in fact, not only in Britain, but anywhere in Europe that has the word Europe in it, the vote is always in the, in the other <laughs> direction. It, it, it's, it's difficult to explain that, that, why there's this reaction. I think we do need more Europe, but we need better Europe as well. We need a more collaborative Europe. The way the debt crisis was dealt with, for example, I think that, I think that left very bad legacy of the way Europe deals with its problems because it wasn't really a policy that European leaders sat together and agreed something that there was consensus throughout. It was more like, you know, Germany, for example, which, is, which has a very different economy from the Southern Europeans, um, took the lead and, and basically said, you know, you should be like, more like us rather than converging. Fiscal policy is still not uh, well coordinated. Some of the populist backlash has been in response to to the res, to the response to the crisis. You know, in response to quantitative easing, people feel like it just gave a lot of money, printed a lot of money, and gave it to people who already had it. You know, in the stock market. Yes. Um, do you, if we are basically going to be using the same tools to respond to the next crisis, mm. um, do you think we need to be? You know, is that going to create even more of a political backlash and maybe more? You know, economic problems down the road from the political backlash, just as we're dealing with now in the UK and elsewhere? Mm. I, I think we need to bring our fiscal policy there if we get into another crisis like the one we had before. Because, I mean, QE has done well, I think, for, for markets, but it did increase, it did contribute to this increase in inequality and in that it increased uh, stock prices, which, which came together with the bigger rises in the incomes of... Uh, the labor incomes of um, top earners and reinforce it. And that's where you need fiscal policy to come in to support the lower incomes 
and those who don't have stocks to benefit from the big rises. In fact, on the contrary, those who have debt, because most of the low income is not debt. So we need a better coordination of fiscal and monetary policy at European level. And that's where I've been most critical of uh, German policies, for example, during crisis that they didn't want to use fiscal policy at all at the European level. I, I heard um, Schäuble talk, uh, the, the German finance minister at the time, uh, talked in the World Economic Forum, for example, many times and saying, uh, you know, in front of the cameras and saying, uh, I know how to do German fiscal policy and, um, and, and that's good, good for Germany and that's what I'm going to do. Well, it was, it was how we handled fiscal policy at the time. But it needs to come along with monetary policy and be used in combination to avoid the problems that you were just pointing at. And does that also mean that central banks, I mean, we've had a big debate uh, in the last few months and a sort of a panic that Donald Trump is tweeting about the Fed and uh, central banks' independence is, are being, is under threat from all these leaders. Sh- should it, is it maybe a good thing if, if central banks uh, are a bit less independent or a bit more, at least more political in how they, they look at their lives? Well, I, I, I think so, actually, yes. They should, they should get away from the complete independence from everything and just look at inflation and nothing else. We pointed out one very important issue that they should be looking at, uh, how their policies affect uh, relative uh, pay, inequality, uh, basically, there are other things they should be looking at. Uh, see if lending is done properly uh, to productive uh, activities, because with all the supervision they are doing, uh, maybe they are acting as a disincentive. But what I'd say is that we also need a more independent fiscal policy than we have now. So maybe a little bit less dependent, less independent monetary policy, more independent fiscal policy, and the two work together to run <laughs> the economy. It's funny because I remember years ago looking into how independent the European Central Bank was. As far as I can see, it's the most independent central bank of any in the world because politicians can't even ask, can't even change its target or uh, they, can, they can appoint the people in charge. But that is it. And I think, there's, I think it's unique in the world or certainly among the major ones that politi- elected politicians are not able to even change the target that it then independently pursues. Yes. And maybe that's one thing that Europeans haven't necessarily got right. I've got one final question, which was, is, a, is a sort of big one, but you don't have to give a complete answer. You know, there is in this, in the populism you see, whether it's Donald Trump or many of the different movements in Europe. There's sort of a critique of mainstream economics embedded in there, the kind of economics um, that was followed in the policies before the crisis. It's about laissez-faire, but it's not just about leaving the market alone. Um, Do you think, you're sitting in London School of Economics, do you think economists as as a profession have responded to that critique? Do you see enough change in the way economists view themselves relative to, say, 10 years ago? We, we, we've responded by emphasizing more uh, things that might go wrong. Of course, that's always been my research in labor markets, so <laughs> I feel comfortable about criticism. I, never, I, I started my research asking why is unemployment rising, and, and the conclusion was that because labor markets don't uh, operate very well as completely free markets and they need 
government help. There are frictions in the labor markets. That was the citation. That's what you got the prize for, yeah. And now economists are looking at these frictions in other markets as well, especially financial markets. They've been applying many of the techniques that uh, we had in labor markets to look at uh, frictions. Now, the other thing I should say, though, is that um, they they criticize economists for, um, say, getting wrong before or whatever. But in fact, it's those who use economic theory that should be criticized. You know, if you step within academia (laughs) at the LSE or elsewhere, you will see that the alternatives are there or what we are doing there, we're there hidden in, in research. You know, maybe academic economists should, should have come out more out of universities uh, trying to influence and all that, but it's not the way it, it happens. So that, I mean, policymakers outside and those who operate outside in the market, they will have their own views about how they see the market uh, working. And then they will look through the many alternative um, uh, economic theories, there might be a theory of the pure market, a theory of market with frictions, a theory of a Marxist theory of the complete breakdown, and then they will take the one that is closest to their political beliefs and apply it, <laughs> not thinking that maybe this market out there has features of those uh, markets with frictions, and, and we should take, you know, especially information, you know, when it comes to information, friction, frictions in financial markets, they're enormous. I like that. So that's the basically guns. Guns don't kill people. People kill people. Kind of approach. It's uh, you, you, you. You could blame it on the on the, the users of the tools. I do yes. think that there is a sense in which economists have um, lost a bit of their awareness of political economy that they had, or that mainstream economics would have had, mm. you know, a hundred or two hundred years yes. ago. And there was something there. Someone, and a very senior official, said to me once that he thought it's true that politicians often ignore the rules of, act like the rules of economics and arithmetic don't operate. And that causes lots of problems when they ignore that. But actually, economists also sometimes act like the rules of politics don't operate. And that's a big problem. Well, they're now taking it more and more into account, in fact, the political economy and the influence of politics. So uh, I can predict with fairly certainty that there will be a Nobel Prize for a political economy. <laughs> but I'm not going to venture to guess who will get it. Professor Chris Pissaridis, thank you very much for coming on. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. So there was plenty to chew on there. But I did also promise you a quick report from the front lines of the US-China trade wars. And our senior trade reporter, frequent contributor to this podcast, Sean Donnan, is just back from China. Sean, the Chinese are looking certainly less conciliatory at this point. We've had a a white paper out complaining about US tactics. We've had also some uh, announcement of investigation into the US company FedEx. Has Donald Trump pushed them too far? Well, I think that's the big question here. And there's a a real sense in China right now that people are looking at this trade conflict and actually preparing for it to last into the longer term. This is no longer a short-term aberration. Uh, This is something that businesses and officialdom and the think tanks are are all adapting to right now. Uh, You really get the sense of people already playing a longer game. Xi Jinping famously invoked uh, the long march, uh, said China needed to prepare, be prepared to, to engage in, in this long march uh, as it approached this economic conflict. And what you really pick up on the ground is that march is already underway and it's well underway. Does that mean that they have basically given up on trying to conclude a deal with 
the U.S. administration, and they're just sort of trying to hoping that it won't get any worse. I I think what what you really pick up is not that they've given up on a deal, but that they're not going to do a deal on Donald Trump's terms uh, and that they feel that they are in a position of strength that Donald Trump doesn't necessarily see. And of course, you know, the worst thing you can get in a trade war or in any negotiation is both sides thinking they're the stronger party at the table and, and not being ready to compromise. Well, and it's interesting because, of course, Donald Trump and uh, those who support the use of tariffs would say, well, America's got the upper hand because America's the place that's receiving all these imports. And the very fact that China's not getting a lot of imports from the US means there's there's less room for, for China to retaliate. But I guess what, what did we see this in the last few days that seemed to sort of was a reminder that China have other ways uh, that they could uh, do a sort of tit for tat here? Yeah, absolutely. I think if you just think about it in the narrow kind of tit-for-tat tariffs world, the U.S. has the upper hand. But what we forget is that uh, China has an important role as a supplier of a number uh, of commodities like rare earths. And we've seen them. These are these kind of rare minerals that are key elements in all sorts of new technologies uh, and vital to to kind of 21st century life. And China really controls uh, a big chunk of the supply of those to the fact that it is an enormous market. And that it has the ability to to harass uh, American companies in different ways uh, that want to do business uh, in that market, and that's a powerful uh, lever that the Chinese uh, can pull. We've seen that. We've seen the Chinese start to pull that. They uh, uh, when Huawei, the big Chinese telecommunications company, was was placed on a Commerce Department entity list. Uh, the U.S. effectively was banning uh, or potentially banning U.S. suppliers from doing business with Huawei, this big company. The Chinese have responded by announcing their own unreliable entities list. And that effectively is aimed at any U.S. company that uh, for non-commercial reasons refuses to do business with a Chinese company. And that means shutting them out of that potentially enormous Chinese market. We've also uh, seen an investigation into uh, Ford, one of its uh, uh, and, and and its joint venture over some potential monopoly behavior. We've seen this uh, FedEx investigation that you've talked about. So th- there's all of these other ways that they can that they can apply pressure on U.S. companies. And at the same time, they're also just kind of planning for the longer term. We had an interview with Yi Gang, uh, the the PBOC governor, People Bank People's Bank of China governor, a few days ago, in which he just pointed to all the different ways they had to to, to bolster the economy from monetary policy. Uh, to uh, some kind of fiscal uh, tax credit policy that they that they could roll out, and in fact, they've already given a, a, a big tax holiday to semiconductor producers and software companies, and so on. So there's a much bigger uh, array of of policy tools that the Chinese have, other than tariffs. And you said you talked to U.S. Uh, business people uh, operating there, or people with joint ventures with the U.S. Uh, in the tech world, in particular. Are they looking at their relationship with China being permanently changed by this? I mean, of course, the fear is that China is going to say, "Okay, well, we're we're dependent on American semiconductors now, and you know, Donald Trump has that potential uh, leverage over us, but uh, we don't intend to be for very long." 
Yeah, I mean, that's already, that fear is already being realized. I think we need to be clear about that. I was at Huawei as part of this, this visit, and you talk to them. They have their own chip unit, and they're just accelerating work there to, to kind of replace the, the U.S. chips that they now rely on. They're also developing their own operating system for smartphones that would replace Google's Android system that they now rely on. They know that uh, it's going to take them some time uh, to transition that, that stuff. But actually, in terms of the smartphone OS, for example, they're already talking about about rolling that out in the Chinese market this year. Those are all the sorts of measures that mean that U.S. companies and U.S. tech companies are going to potentially lose access to a big market like China as this uh, trade war backfires on, uh, on them, but also that uh, uh, they're going to have new competitors that are enabled and that are going to become more aggressive in the years to come. That's something we keep coming back to. There's the, there's the headlines that we get very excited about. What's going to happen with uh, the tariffs? What's happening to the uh, economic numbers right now? And then there's what's happening under the surface to global supply chains and relationships as a result of this uh, trade war. Watch this space. Thank you very much, Sean Donner. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Stephanomics. We'll be back next week with more on-the-ground insights into the global economy. In the meantime, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal, website, app, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love it if you took the time to rate and review our show so it can reach more listeners. But for more news and analysis during the week from Bloomberg Economics, follow at Economics on Twitter. Or you can also find me on at MyStephanomics. This episode was produced by Magnus Hendrickson, with assistance from Amelia Roberts, Laura Carlson, and Topher Forges. Our executive producer is Scott Landman. Special thanks to Professor Christopher Pisarides and Sean Donham. Francesca Levy is the head of Bloomberg Podcasts.